0: Thank you for downloading this Hay Festival's podcast. For more information about the Hay Festival's globally
1: and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. It's, uh, it's uh, quite an honour to come to Hay. I, I'll tell you why. Peter Florence writes the most ingratiating letter I've ever m- received. Uh, I think he says that to all the boys and girls. And then I was wondering, and I, I ran into Doris Lessing and said... What's Hay Like? Because I know she's been here. She said, it's the best literary festival in Europe, so go. So here I am. Uh, I always feel a bit dubious about talking about the subject of the last book I wrote. uh, Because it's rather somber. And I keep remembering Mrs. Mop, which one or two of you are old enough to remember, as well as me. Uh, You remember in uh, Take It From Here. She used to say, it's, it's being so... What's it? I haven't got the wrong title. Itmar, that's right. Itmar. Um, Mrs. Mrs. Mop used to come in and say, it's being so cheerful that keeps me going. And I feel a bit like that when I talk like this. And, uh, and the, other, the other one is the fat boy in Dickens, whom I'm sure you all remember, uh, who said, I'm going to make your flesh creep. Uh, but the third thing I always remember is that lovely... Passage by one of Dr. Johnson's friends, Oliver Edwards, who said, I'd tried to study philosophy, but cheerfulness would keep breaking in. So, uh, <laughs> uh, and then I remember Thomas Hardy, who was one of the dourist of men, and he said, if a way to the better there be, it exacts a full look at the worst. So I'm going to give you a good look at the worst. Uh, what I'm really doing is talking about a sort of thesis I've tried to develop, about the condition of late, late 20th century capitalist society, the open society, and the place in it of mass communications and so on. I think the first thing to say, so that you don't un- misunderstand me, is that yes, we, we are so much better off than we were. One has to admit that. We're better, all in all, we're better fed, we're better housed, we're better clothed, we have what should be better holidays. I don't think they always are, but at any rate, they're abroad, uh, and... Uh, and uh, Uh, But I do have a tendency to to look on the gloomy side, and I remember that great social historian H.L. Beals, who read the typescript of the use of literacy all those years ago, and he said, it's all right, Hogger, but do remember when you were a boy in Leeds, in the Leeds working class, and you got on a tram on a wet day, it stank, and we don't stink now even in Leeds. And I thought that was very sound advice. Um, The the point, though, uh, also when one says how much better off we are is that we tend to forget, and the last governments almost deliberately forgot, that we have an underclass. And I do urge anybody who hasn't read it to read Nick Danziger's book, that's D-A-N-Z-I-G-E-R, Danziger's book, called Journey to the Edge. I thought I knew quite a bit about what they call sink council estates, but uh, Danziger shook me very badly because uh, He went there and and explored and revealed to us the the real depths of the drug culture and the booze culture and the violence culture and the incest culture and all those things. It's a terrifying book but should be read. Well my argument begins by saying that one of the features of late 20th century society is the decline of the idea of authority. And I want to say again very quickly, I'm glad about that, I'd rather make my own mistakes. But if you think back, those of you who are that old, to the sort of society one knew before the war, one was always aware, at least in my sphere of life, of them above us, them outside. The world was divided into them and us, and them were the city council down in town, them was the doctor, good or bad, them was the local vicar or minister. We were, had a minister, we were very primitive, primitive Methodists. And uh, we knew the world was divided in that way, and we knew that in some sense they, told, they made the rules for us, or they, if they made the rules and we didn't obey, then we knew that we would be in trouble. The point about the late 20th century is that for almost everybody um, that sense of an authority outside and above has virtually gone. And then the first problem arises, which is that we can't exist in a vacuum. society can't exist in a vacuum, (coughs) and um, we can't individually. We've got to have something by which we live, some ideas, some attitudes. Actually when you say that, uh, you realize that it's only a half-truth or an emerging truth. I made a film in my old district of Leeds, Hunslet, some time back, and talked to a great range of old ladies. None of them, well, say, oh, they were raised from 55 to 85, I'd guess. And none of them uh, were going to chapel again. They were mainly chapel-goers, that part of Leeds is. And on the other hand, I, I, when I tried to talk to them as demotically as I knew how by now, which was to say, you know, what, I, I, I don't know quite what I said, but I was trying to say, what makes you tick, what do you live by? I didn't say things like, have you got any moral values? I just said, by what do you live? And they then trotted out, and I don't mean that in a demeaning way, they they spoke straight away various ethical precepts like you've got to live and let live, you've got to be tolerant, other people have lives, you've got to help one another. You know that that chain of uh, aphorisms in British society, especially among working class people. And there they were, I suppose their origins were in fact Christian, but they were no longer practicing Christians. I asked their daughters about it and they were a bit less sure but they still had those things to utter and for the younger ones I don't know. So these things don't go quickly and people were still as it were living on the capital which they or their parents had acquired from Christian precepts. So we have though this increasing openness and widening of society and the the loss of a sense of outside rules. And then, these are the elements, as I see them, of of the modern society, culturally. Um, We then have the unprecedented speed of mass communications technology, the biggest single wave of of change. Uh, We have, I've mentioned prosperity, we have therefore the rise of a whole new race of people who are uh, communications people. It, one bright spark says that in, by the end of the century, 95% of us will be in communications. He meant things, everything from teaching, to airline flying, to travel agents, to what you will. Uh, some form of saying things or delivering things to other people, that this interchange will be the major source of multiple occupations, most of which we didn't even have 20 or 30 years ago. So what, out of this, there's, there's, greater, money, there's greater spare money Across the population to a degree that we never knew, there are more things to be done. There's more ways of doing them quickly and effectively. And what one gets, I'm trying to avoid the word consumer, the phrase consumer society, because it's overused, but I can't help saying, finding my own phrase for it, commodity culture, if you like. And the interesting thing to bear in mind there is that it's so extensive that it isn't, it isn't just a society of commodities such as food, everything from Sainsbury's to Tesco and across. Holidays from Thomson, St. Jules Verne, or Clothes, what well, you name them, Benetton and all the rest next, and so on. It's also a market in ideas, or if ideas is too grand a word, it's, an ideas, it's a market in notions, that we, we use notions as we use food. We produce it, we disperse it, and we consume it, and we throw it away, what's left of it. So that's the thing really to hold on to, that the, the communications process is not just physical. In many ways, that's quite handy. It's also in quickly disposable notions rather than ideas or beliefs. In a society like this, what emerges, because there are no, as it were, perceived outside rules, what emerges is a form of relativism, in which you really find it very hard to say what one would stand by. And in a, a society of not total relativism, but considerable relativism, how do you judge? How do you decide what's good or bad? And on the whole, what you're led into is, is headcount. I have a, uh, a habit of writing to the BBC, and the letters are then shunted across to some office that looks after such letters. And I say, what do you mean by doing violence to Lady Chatterley's lover, or something like that? Uh, you've abused it, and so on. And they write back and say, you're very sorry dear. You. you think we've abused Lady Chatterley's lover? But 10 million people thought it was very good. <laughs> and so that solves the problem. And you I've given up writing back and saying if one person thought it was lousy, that person might well be right. <laughs> but, uh, you can't do it by headcounts, but they do. And it's extraordinary to, to the extent that, that this is spread across society. That in the end, people say, if so many people like it, it must be good. And if you were um, going to question that, and then the dirty words come in, you're an elitist. Or you're a high bourgeois. Or you're even worse, a high bourgeois elitist. And if you came... <laughs> If you came from the working classes, you're a traitor as well as everything else, so, <laughs> so there you are. Uh, the, the, the most interesting, not the most, but one of the most interesting aspects of it I've just finished writing about is, um, is the way it influences our language, because we do a lot of... There's an awful lot of work done on language, but very few people write about the way language changes as cultures change, and also how as cultures change, people change. You, could t- you, you uh, Many people, Raskin said, tell me what you're saying, I'll tell you what you are. And Lawrence said the same, and, and Bernanos said it, and, and Valeria, ever so many said it. Tell me your language and I'll tell you who you are. I haven't time to go into all of it, but let me take one typical word. The word judgment is really a, a pretty difficult word to use now. It is my judgment, really would worry a lot of people. The word that's come in to take its place is judgmental and judgmental, the addition of those two letters change judgment from a word of judgment into a word which means you are a narc and you're a moralizer and you're always judgmental, which means you have a disposition to judge, but we don't believe in judging anyway. So it's a lovely way out uh, linguistically. Um, You find that if you get into an argument with fairly sophisticated people, you find that they're very unwilling to say, I believe they get to a point where they want to say that and then they look rather nervously at the group and they say it's my real cl- I genuinely think and the stress on genuinely we think added is a, is a substitute for saying I believe because that's not sayable uh, they come up all the time I, I uh <coughs> was amused to see that when Channel 5 started incidentally it's run by an ex graduate student of mine. So we have a minute silence for that. I think. <laughs> uh, and and uh, and uh, and. you uh, um, clever chap. <laughs> uh, the the lady who I think it's a wonderful name, like Dawn Airy. You could turn it around; it could be Airy Dawn or something like that. But she she was asked to say what Channel Five was about, and she said Channel Five is about attitude. And I thought, click, that's it. That's the new one that's come really in the last few months. And you say to her, I didn't, I never met her. But you say, to her, attitude about what? Attitude towards whom? Because you can't have an attitude. If you have an attitude without anything, it's attitudinal towards. It's like a broken finger. It's not pointing anywhere. <laughs> and, and, and so, and, and, but she doesn't want to know that. She knows that it ain't what you do, it's the way that you do it. It's not the matter, it's the manner. So Channel 5 is about attitude, which means really that it's got no substance at all, but it's got a heck of a lot of manner. <laughs> um, then I become quite hopeful because the new word, the really new word now, it's wonderful to watch this sort of thing happening. The new word now is transparency. And I think that's a hopeful word because it means they've seen through something. <laughs> and, and they'll say, I, I rather like that man. I think he's transparent. And I and the think they mean, he's not conning me. He's actually saying what he means. So let's, keep, let's cheer for transparency for the time being. He will go, of course. One of the oddest of all, and it, it, I think behind every English person there's a bit of Pilgrim's Progress, is the way we pick up religious ones. And the, the one that's going uh, hell for leather just now, of course, is Mission Statement. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I, was, I nearly wrote to Robin Cook, but I knew I'd get one of those letters back, so I didn't bother about it. <laughs> Uh, saying, because um, he had a mission statement at the back of him in the Foreign Office and you could see the Permanent Secretary and the Deputy all wincing gently as this was going on. Um, uh, I was I was attending a committee in the College of Higher Education a few weeks ago and at the back of the hall of the wall there was a, a mission statement and it was pompous in the highest degree number one that we have and we I mean, know it's come from America most of them have but it's totally uh, crackers, because they haven't got a mission, they're doing a job. And, uh, and then you go to Heathrow, I never go in there because I can't afford it, but uh, there's, there's a sign saying, <laughs> dedicated lounge for club-class passengers. And you imagine the, 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 uh, uh, the airport chaplain dedicating <laughs> it. for the, uh, <laughs> So the next one would be dedicated mission statements in universities, at the, at the back of the vice-chancellor. Um, in, the, in this whole process, which is fascinating to watch, the word that comes up again and again, because we're very guilty about it, is class, of course. Uh, the English are obsessed with class, we all know that. But the, the great thing now is that you mustn't say it. I say it all the time, and people say, oh, you're out of date, old boy, it's all gone on you. Know, I'm great friends with my child lady. And... Uh, LAUGHTER <and>, uh, <laughs> um, uh, it hasn't gone, of course it hasn't gone. It's, it's there. Uh, I shouldn't tell you this story, but I will. I, I was in, I was in, when we were in Paris, I was asked by David Eccles, who was Minister for the, the Arts, if I'd advise him about getting the Rosetta Stone into Paris for a few weeks, and wouldn't the frog sort of nick it? Because we'd pinched it originally. And would I speak to the head of the Louvre? He said, meet me in the embassy tonight boy, the reception. I'll make sure you get in. So I got in and went into a corner with David Eccles. It was all right. I mean, he's a roaring snob, but he's fairly decent. And uh, Soames, the ambassador, came up, and he was about six foot six, and I'm not. And, and, and <laughs> e- Eccles, was, Eccles was there, and I, I, I had my back to Soames. I didn't know he was, up, he was coming. And suddenly this booming voice said... <laughs> you want rescuing David? <laughs> and I thought, God, in Hunsley, we would regard that as intensely vulgar because he thought that the man Eccles was talking to was monolinguin odu or something. He wouldn't even hear himself being insulted. And to his credit, Eccles said, no, thanks. I'm enjoying talking to my friend. So, but Soames didn't say sorry. He just walked off. I mean, that was a, well, that's just a bit of the class that lingers on. Soames is dead, of course, but his memory lingers on. Um, as you see. Uh, the, point, uh, the the argument about class and the changes in class is this, that we don't let it go. We have too much emotional capital invested in the idea of class. So it's moved. It's moved over to status. And the emotional energy from class becomes that which props up the sense of professional or executive status. We all know that every second person in the professional world now is called an executive because it's cheap. You don't have to have an increase but it sounds grand, and they live in executive housing, in executive estates, and they worry about whether this neighbor's got a new BMW, or whether the was a gourmet cook, you know, and all that sort of thing. And you can, you can go through this, this range of things and know that what you're seeing is class in a new form. Go into a railway station, Charing Cross will do, Waterloo where we come in, and look at the great smiths or whatever they have there, and you see those shelves of, of magazines and you can break them down into status groupings. Exactly. You know, all the, 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 the sort of modern equivalents of fretwork and things like that. Uh, and then you can go all the way up to things for the very dedicated, there's another one, dedicated hi-fi people and so on. And one of the interesting things about the communications revolution is that people like us, I mean, you're all in upper group 20, I should think, 20%, or you wouldn't be here. If not, you better go. Uh, the, uh, the upper 20%, which is you and me, and people who've moved up, and we do move up more because the uh, modern industries, modern communications industries, need brains, not who your uncle is. Which is why that book of David Lodge's, which he, he mentioned today in that talk, uh, where you have the girl coming in who's on the, com- on the computers in the city, and she's a wizard uh, playing socks and chairs. And she has the broadest cockney accent. She'd only been to a comprehensive school and so on, but she gets a job and she's paid enormously because she has that kind of wit. That's t- uh, sort of a, a, a very good, almost, the, almost unique example of the changes. So you've got about 20% and then society goes to about 50 or 60 or something like that of the middle range. Channel 3, the Daily Mail, the Daily Express, a bit of the mirror, into the sun. And then you get the, uh, the, the underclass about whom, was forced to say we need not concern ourselves, except that we should. Um, the interesting thing here is that the weight of resources has to go to the middle range. Obviously it does, and the profits are huge. But because of the finesse and the extraordinary complexity of modern communications, it is now profitable to provide very finely for us. We get the finely tuned provision. You wouldn't have had it before. It's as it were, the American, just remember, the American paperback revolution some years ago started on the backs of spare machine capacity when they'd finished doing as many violence and sex thrillers as they needed. So it was a kind of piggyback operation like a, um, whatchamacallit, a rocket on the back of a 747. And we are in the middle of that one now, which is why we are so well provided for. We're provided for, on the whole, on the back of the fact that a mass of people are being given what, on most counts, is tripe. So that the, ma- the major people here are the persuaders, the admin, the PR people, and they have their triumph because the level of literacy in Britain is, is much lower than it should be. Uh, the figures about this vary enormously. It's m- the most common figure is 17% below the level of truly functional literacy. Well, we wouldn't argue about that. All, all I know is that there are far more people below the level of literacy to live in a complex, open, commercial democracy. And they're conned. They're conned more in the working classes than anywhere else. There's no doubt about that. I, as I said before, was brought up in them and it was a world where you were conned all the time. And they still are. And if they buy their own council houses, they become the perfect victims. Cowboys come in and say, your roof's collapsing on you. That driveway needs doing. That washing machine you bought, the wrong one there, you know, and so on and so on. And they're worried, because they, they are now the owners, but there are many others, of course. So you then got to look at the popular press. And I'm prepared to argue that the popular press is worse now than it was. I mean, I never thought I'd say come back daily mirror from the mirror of the pre-war. But one feels like it. Uh, it is worse because it has had to concentrate. It's concentrated for profit, and that means you cut out anything which might slow things up. It's easily understandable, but meanwhile, what takes its place? Broadcasting. Um, The BBC, I think they still do their best, and I've just done a job of work for them on their educational provision. I was surprised by how good it was, but most people don't watch it or listen to it. Uh, The BBC produces programmes at least as bad as any of the others, at least as bad. And it's to their shame that they took on the Saturday Lottery. They should never have done it. And Old Reith must have turned in his grave when he heard that, because it just was not a decent thing to do. But just to have a moment about that, I think the most disgraceful thing is the way this last government actively promoted the lottery. I'm a, a liberal enough. I don't want to stop people taking out lottery tickets if they want them. I don't do it myself. But if they want to, they can do. It's a free society. But we know now, and even the operators have said so, that the lottery gets more money from people who can least afford it than it does from any other social class. And you know why they do it. I remember on television one woman who had no husband, two or three kids, and she had Social Security, and she said, I'm trapped, I can't get out of here. Nothing I do is going to get me out. So at least I have a, a, a flutter and think I might just make it. She's wrong, of course, but it's human nature. But the idea of a, of a government actually sponsoring it and supporting it, as they did from Virginia Bottomley through to Major, is disgraceful. They should shut up. Uh, it's a bit like the cigarette business. They took ages to, to uh, admit that they should put signs saying cigarettes can damage your health, and now they're fighting them like mad about uh, advertising, and they're bringing out all their humbug tears about sports sponsorship and so on. They'll go on like that. And they're totally wrong and they're not only wrong they're, it's an evil thing to do by a government it's not part of a democratic government's purpose to to promote that kind of thing but they don't seem to know they don't have the language anyway Virginia Bottomley who is RMP says things like oh we don't want all these spoilsports uh, we don't want these puritanical prudes she has a box of this stuff like old-fashioned type which she throws out very very bad uh, in a world like this, and this brings me to the cause of a conference like this, there's a great movement, and it is a big movement, to say that reading is now old-fashioned, reading's finished, it's out, which seems a bit odd when you think that we're near hundred thousand copies of different books a year. But then you realise what many of the books are, so that your hubris begins to drop a bit. Um, the there are two. I, I, I think we can ignore one. one. One odd aspect of the attack on literature comes from the departments of English in universities. That is to say, the, the theorists who have been so anxious to create things like structuralism, post-structuralism, postmodernism that they are saying, no, uh, every book is read by a different person. There is no, uh, no book in itself. Again, something Ruskin really hit out at. Quite right too. Um, Along with that, you, I've got lots of passages which I won't quote. there are people in the media who say um, reading is out, reading doesn't matter anymore. The great thing now is audio-visual communications as though literally they do mean, they're not, they're not kidding, that the books will become terribly old-fashioned. You won't find people sitting in corners reading books on their own because the great new media will take, it, take them over. And it's a profound mistake and I'll try to say why. Um, Incidentally, I'll do a plug here, the Book Trust, which is a fine little organisation about which nobody's heard, I think. Anybody heard about it? Oh, good, thanks. Well, I'm chairman of it, (laughs) so I've heard of it. (laughs) Um, Till September, when somebody in the audience takes over. Um, Book Trust is running a seminar on the 17th September in the big new conference hall of the uh, British Library on why reading matters. And if you can get there, I do hope you'll come. It's it's got Malcolm Bradbury, Margaret Drabble, Valentine Cunningham, who's an Oxford don, who's written a very witty, clever book about the limits of theory in in literature, and uh, Roy Hattersley. So it should be all right. We're, We're trying to make a sort of public statement, assertion about the value of reading. Now, those of us who do like reading have got to watch. Uh, at least two things, and I won't, I'm sure you won't like what I'm going to say now, but there we are. One is, don't believe on, in the onward and upward myth about reading. That's to say, it doesn't matter what you read or what they read, they move up from that, and they'll start with Hank Jansen or, let us say, Geoffrey Archer, because you can't escape saying Geoffrey Archer. <laughs> Geoffrey Archer up through Graham Greene, up to Conrad, total myth, just not true. Shakespeare, as you hit it straight, he said, the appetite grows by what it feeds on. And if you feed people all that, especially in this society where the machines are waiting and the persuaders are waiting, they'll go on being fed that stuff. So most people go round and round, and only the ones who break out are the clever ones, the ones with imagination, and more than all, those whose parents read to them. It's the most important single thing, and it's just beginning to, we always did, I suppose most of you did, but... Do you know how many did? Very few. I do know. I mean, very few. are no books in the home that many of the parents can't very well read themselves. One of the fine things this um, second plug for Book Trust is doing. We got some money, and we, we've been running for about five years a, a thing called BookStart in Birmingham district, where we very cleverly worked out, and the universities doing justifying it you know, intellectually for us. Uh, <laughs> I didn't really need it, but it looks better. Uh, the, the, what we do is uh, we give books and constant papers and all that to a, a group of very carefully selected families from rather posh ones through to, almost, well, illiterate families. And we've monitored them very carefully to see whether the mothers, the, the fathers really do, the mothers read to them. They promised to and they've done it. And now that cohort is just passing through its first year. That's cool. And we, we had the first draft reports in April it's very interesting they they went into the the uh, model classroom the one that we're using and said to the teacher how are a b c and d doing that those are the four children in that class in the cohort who have been tested for five who who've been read to for five years and the teacher said it's funny why do you mention those are the four best kids in the class now I found that puzzling I mean either our thing had worked extremely well or it could have been that they were bright and that they were brought on more. It's, it's one of those things, very difficult to decide just what happened. But it certainly isn't, in, isn't insignificant. It may be very significant. So we cannot rest by saying they, they, they will go on and up. They won't, because too much is, is persuading them to stay where they are. So a step has to be made, and if it's not done by their parents, it has to be done at school. The other one, uh, I'm sure, again, will not be altogether palatable, is... We have too much belief in television adaptations. Um, Yes, I enjoyed Middlemarch enormously. I I thought Persuasion was far better than Pride and Prejudice. That really was a rather subtle attempt to translate to screen. But they're not. None of them are the the books. You've only got to pick up Jane Austen, and you know, it is a truth universally that, and you hear that wonderful, wry, ironic voice and you're in another world. You can't get that on the screen. And that, that, that reminds you that reading is a one-to-one thing. We can discuss books, but we read in a solitary way because it goes in there. And there is no way in which television can be a substitute because by definition it, it extracts certain things, usually the more visual images, and it can't handle the rest. They made a very clever attempt with Middlemarch, If those of you who saw it. At the end, they got Judy Dench doing the George Eliot voice about the virtue of a life led humbly and privately, and that was a good crack at it. It wasn't the same, but it got nearer it. So, no, um, I watch television. I love those things, but they are not a substitute for literature, and they do not lead on. You're, you're, if you say that, someone will say, but we sold 200,000 copies of Pride and Prejudice after the film. How many were read? How many were got past the first page? How many remained on coffee tables? How many can you pick up in the latest car books there, boots there? I tell you, you can pick up a lot within six months. So we've no grounds for a great um, optimism there. Well, well, in all this, and if what I'm saying has any element of truth what, a, what situation are we in, as it were, habitually, and what are our obligations? I think we have great strengths. For one thing, we, we are, and I'm not trying just to cheer you up or cheer myself up now. We are a very inventive nation. It's to our great credit that we invented allotments, which is a superb thing to have done. It <laughs> really is a, a, a most imaginative move, and the Belgians took it up like mad, as they would. They gave us chips in, in exchange. Um, uh, uh, public parks, these are humane, human things, as the 19th century ones, of course. Adult education, uh, to their great credit, it was the old universities that came out of the walls and did that. It was Oxbridge, 10 years apart. And this, in this uh, generation, it's the open university, which nearly didn't get off the ground. Mm. Edward Boyle told me that he it said it's it, it, got off the ground because of one man's heartbeat, he missed it. It was the chance of the exchequer who said, I'm not going to sign this, it was the enabling instrument, and he died that night. Uh, Edward Bowers was a very generous, kind man, but he, f- he had a bit of a wry smile at that point. Um, so the Open University is a triumph of its own kind, and it's been imitated all over the world, as it should be. So we have that kind of inventiveness, uh, if we can find it again. It hasn't been invented 20 years, but it'll come. Uh, we are an amazing nation for voluntary activities. I talked to W.E. Williams, who ran the Arts Council before he retired and died quite soon. And I was talking about this. I said, what are you, what are you going to do in your retirement? He said, I'm going to write the Doomsday Book of English Leisure. That would be great. He said, I know where you come from. But it's Leeds. He said, if you go into Leeds Brigitte on Saturday morning and you throw half a brick, you'll hit two operatic people, two women of the Women's Institute, two members of the Red Cross, uh, two others who run a, straight, a stroke society and so on and so on. I said, Hundreds of them. So I counted them up in our town, Farnham, which is sadly uh, typical. And we've got nearly 200 voluntary bodies. They're changing their uniforms with the seasons almost. You begin to know the neighbours by, the, oh, that's autumn, she's in a Red Cross uniform, or Mrs. So-and-so on the corner collecting for uh, heart disease or something like that. It, the only country I've ever met where they had such this extraordinary efflorescence of voluntary work is Chile, And I think that came from English emigrants in the 19th century. And we take it for granted. We shouldn't. It's very useful. Then there's there's, um, neighborliness. Uh, I wrote a lot in the use of literacy about neighborliness, and I ascribed its strength on the whole to the fact that in the working classes, you couldn't pay people to work for you, so you did it between yourselves. You borrowed sugar from next door. You tapped with the poker when the baby was coming, that kind of thing. And I thought it, um, I thought it was basically a working-class habit. I was quite wrong. Uh, we're now living in a middle-class district, and it's as strong as ever. Extraordinary strength of it. There's a lovely passage, and I was trying to remember it tonight. It really typifies the English sense of neighborliness, and I'm sure some of you will remember it. It's an old English woman saying how lonely she is, and she, I can't remember the name of the, the friend who's just died. Let's call her Amy Smith, just because I can't remember. Since Amy Smith of Duppas Hill has gone, no one will ever call me Nellie again. And it's enough to make you cry. And it's such a wonderful sense of belonging to other people and, and, and of being left behind. So that, and the sense of charity. And at this moment, one always remembers George Orwell. After all, he said, you know, when it all comes down to it, the English are a family. He said English, by the way. The English are a family. And then that wonderful payoff, he said, with the wrong people in control. <laughs> uh, which is too true. Well, not quite, I think. That's three weeks. Right. <laughs> um, and there's, I think the, that all, the Orwell is the one most favoured by modern people who talk about British culture. But the one we all go back to is John Donne. Never, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. And that is a profoundly English or British remark. I've got so tied up with this English-British thing, I'm being nervous about it, because I'm not sure what British means. I mean, I know what English means, I think, and I can guess Scots and Welsh, and I know what British means in an institutional sense and even in a historic sense. But in a a culture sense, in the fibers of society, I find that much more difficult. So we have that, and we have it very strongly. Also, uh, Today, we're showing a good deal of energy in things, especially among younger people, in, in causes which are not party political, but which are international, horizontal, cross countries. I mean things like anti-racism, environment movements, human rights, feminism, and so on. The question then is, and this is one that people who cite what I've cited as evidence of how well we can do things, the question is, How does all that relate to the sense of power? I think one of the answers to that is not very much. There are books, uh, I'm sure most of you haven't read them because they're sort of um, pretty academic and enclosed, but Paul Willis, who came from the Birmingham Centre, Cultural Studies Centre, wrote a very fine book or two about uh, dissident groups in England, motorcycle gangs and things like that, and he learned their language and he talked about their methods and... The ways of life and so on, and it was, it was a very sympathetic, Hebdige is another one who did that, a very sympathetic portrayal of people who are outside society. But what he didn't do, and he may be going to do it, I don't know, he's still relatively young, what he didn't do was to say how this kind of thing relates to the practice of power and, and turning levers and making things work. There's an American writer who's an idiot who's read a b- bigger book about it and says it is an important subversive activity. Well, to ride motorbikes roaring around the streets of Birmingham is not an important subversive activity. You can understand perhaps why they do it, but it has no connection with the centre of power, and that's the connection we don't find it easy to make. What about what Coleridge called the clarity, which is a word we don't use now. The, uh, the French say clerks, of course, tris on um, clercs. i would like to reintroduce clarity. What Coleridge meant was those people who were both intelligent and responsible and feel that they should stand up and say something. The Americans do this better now. Um, Irving Howe, who's not long dead and who edited dissent for years, in his last days, he said, the universities must stand for substantial morality, and if they don't do that, they're just powerhouses for industry. And um, Professor Charles Frankel of Columbia um, used to say, I will always teach the first year as well as, other, as my postgraduate students because that's where it begins and my, my job is to put maggots in the soft cheese of American society. Well, he died as he lived. He, he wouldn't leave New York beca- because he just couldn't leave New York. So one night, two blacks, drugged to the eyeballs, came in with guns and he shot up and started giving them a very decent lecture, we understand, so they shot him dead. And that was the end of Charles Frankel. But he stood for these things like Irving Howe did very well. I'm not, I'm not happy about the way a lot of English intellectuals stand here. I think they're much more easy uh, writing letters to the Times about bad events in Chile than they are about what's happening up in the Goebbels or something like that. And they're also terribly bitten by the relativist bug. Uh, I'll give you an instance. I, uh, I was doing a program with an Ox, Oxbridge don. I'm being cautious, of course. Oxbridge, Don. And he was quite... Uh, he was an intelligent man, obviously. He wouldn't have been there, I suppose. Uh, but, he said... He started talking about ads, adverts, and said to me, you, you know you are a very puritanical. I said, yes. Um, <laughs> well, well... Um, I said, look, let's take an advertisement. Have you seen... Um, some of you will have seen it. It's a, an advert for Yellow Pages in which there's an aged widow. And uh, her son comes and... and for her birthday or something, he's found an old um uh eight millimetre film, the sort that you had to use a, a projector for, and he's also found a film which will transpose it to a video, and he takes as a present to his mother the video of, of the the honeymoon, I think it was, on walking on the promenade at Southport or something like that of her husband and her, and she have you seen it? Of course you have, and and she. He's a slim young man in light flannels and a so you know, the sort of thing. And, she, and walking on the beach and doffing his Panama. And she says, he was a good-looking fellow, he dad, and her eyes filled with tears. I said to myself, that's just shameful. It's contemptuous of people. Anybody who's affected by that should not be exposed to that kind of thing. It's just exploiting them. And he didn't understand me at all. So I hammered on a bit. And then he he took up the next line of defence, which was, it's very well made. (laughs) Well, if he hasn't discovered that the people who make commercials have got ten times the money of those who make programmes, he's he's got to learn a bit more than that. Of course they've got the money, of course it's well made, because it sells goods. He also said it was witty, which was a a mistranslation, because it isn't a very witty programme, it's just a very stupid programme. But it it has its effect. If it doesn't, what's it doing? So I, I, I think those of us who are more intelligent and we have to admit that perhaps uh, had better think again now what I come down to in the end is this there's a great deal written and and said about the need for more literacy, I've mentioned it and three kinds of literacy are talked about, one is basic literacy which is really getting people off the ground the next is functional literacy so that you can operate properly read a bus timetable or read your rates demand or nowadays you're own tax demand and so on. That's pretty complicated. And the third, which was the one that the last sequence of Tory governments got stuck on was vocational literacy. Always for vocation, not for anything else. The one thing they didn't want it for was what I'm going to say. So we had those, and of course now the Labour government's in and Blunkett's got a big scheme for literacy. I'm still missing the, the, the real question. He'll do well if he gets most of the population at the age of 11 up to a pretty reasonably functional literacy level, that's a help. At the moment, most are just made literate enough to be able to be deceived. So what I want to say is that in a society which is open, quite prosperous, highly technological in communications, uh, but filled with the new breeds of, persu- of uh, men, PR men and all that, we have to have a fourth literacy, and it's totally it's 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 essential in a society like this, and that is critical literacy. That is to say, literacy in which you can say that's a con or that's a lie, or not so, I'm not buying that. And unless we do that, we won't we won't be a proper democracy. I'm fond of mentioning somebody, actually a son of ours, but it's a good story. He he teaches in FE, further education in London. And he said to me one day, I envy you. You could go into a lecture room and talk about George Orwell. It must be wonderful. But I can't do that. Mine are boys and girls who, well they're 18, 19, they've come out of school with no credits. They've realized what they're missing and they've come back and I painfully get them through if I can. But I, can't, I, couldn't, I couldn't read a book to them. They can't read books. And then he had what I thought was a very bright idea. He saw that they almost all had ghetto bastards and brought them into the class with them. And he, he, he got hold of a copy of Witch. which had done a, s- a survey of ghetto blasters. You know how Witch does it. Graphs about woof and boomf and all those things and charts and everything and comparisons. And he photocopied it and they all sat reading it. And he said it was a painful thing to see because they were really having to spell it out. But they were doing it because they suddenly realized, it was the first time in their lives that you could make comparisons about things that you bought. And suddenly, one of the boys stood up and said, "Bloody hell, I've been conned!" <laughs> well, uh, because he'd realised he'd bought a rotten set, as a result of peer group pressure or Dixon's ads or something like that. I think that was like throwing up an educational muscle, that he'd reached another level. It wasn't much, but it was. Uh, that is the beginning, I think, of uh, of understanding. Well. I said the BBC does better than we think. They do, but they, don't, they hide their light too much and it, it's in too narrow a fo- focus. Um, I think if the organs of universities, further education, um, WA and all those places, all the, all the lovely voluntary bodies got together, and the BBC and the rest of it, uh, to improve this, but to talk about critical literacy, not just functional literacy, we might move a bit. And, and that, at that point, I became very hopeful. I was reading Auden, who was a favorite, my favorite modern English poet, uh, getting old and almost dying. And then he wrote this lovely poem which ends After, after so many years, I've forgotten that bit, fancy forgetting that bit. After so many years, the light is novel still and immensely ambitious. And that was a wonderful way to sort of put yourself forward. Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, Peter Florence said that uh, would you like to ask some questions or add a comment or a critique or something? <laughs> Just shout nonsense on about matter. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah.
0: Um, have you any comments about the quality of the national curriculum? I have read a book on the teaching of uh, thinking or reason which uh, was written by a professor of education in London, which was suggesting that a lot of education now is not teaching thinking or open criticism, but is more concerned with cramming people with facts.
1: I'm going to back out with that one because I couldn't say anything that's informed. The irony of it is, I'm not going to name him, but the immediately retired senior chief inspector of her majesty's schools is sitting in this hall. And, 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 and I, I, I'm going to have supper with him afterwards. So... <laughs> Uh, anything I said would be off the top of my head on that one. Sorry. <laughs> Here. Sorry. It's, I can't quite see them, yeah.
0: Um, you mentioned about the BBC and classics, um, pr- presenting classics on television. I wonder what your opinion was of people, uh, the screenwriters, such as David Lodge, who actually adapt the books and then change the endings, as in Martin Chuzzlewick. Yes.
1: Did,
0: did you come to David this morning? I heard him speak last year
1: and I asked oh, him the question oh, about see. why yes, he did it. Yes, yes, Well, as I've said three times, I'm a real Puritan on that. Uh, and, but uh, David's very persuasive when he tells it. Uh, <laughs> <so> <laughs> um, I think he's, he's. I think what came out this. I'd never heard him speak about it, though we were colleagues at Birmingham for 10 years. Uh, but that was before he got this great fame. Um, oh, he is. He's very good. Obviously. Um, I think David is much more, is he, what, if any of you were there, he was charmed by the whole process, I thought, this morning of adaptation. And uh, he began to, as it were, think in those terms, and uh, and he would justify it like that. I I would be no good. I mean, that's that. I would I'd, I'd dig in and uh, say now, things like that. So, um, well, I'm fiddling about, I mean, I'd, I I think David is a different person and he has been to a degree that I didn't know till I heard him this morning. uh, Found great charm in seeing what he can do, uh, which he couldn't do in a novel. And that's fair enough. As for changing the ending of it, uh, I think he would have said, well, so did Dickens. I mean, he responded to his audiences sometimes in that way and he wasn't alone in that. Hardly changed one because of of uh, public opinion, Lawrence wouldn't have. That's the, that's the spectrum you work with. To, to move us from relativism back to judgment and from functional to critical literacy and the various points you made, do you have any particular prescriptions, recommendations, wishes in the next four to five years that we together could do, could achieve, practically? Well, I tried to list some of them. I think we ha- at the end, I think we have very good background. I'm not making that up. I'm always struck by the strength of the, as it were, the roots and the things that we can do. The ones I mentioned, like volunteer activity, charity, and all the and all that, um, I think we have a marvelous network of institutions which don't get together enough, from Women's Institute to Towns Women's Guild to so the whole range of them, and then the more famous ones like the WEA and the Universities and Departments, etc., etc. Uh, I would like to see those get together much more than they do at present. I'm very hopeful because, as you no doubt have gathered through the cracks, I'm rather glad we've changed government. Uh, and uh, I was worried, like many people were, about the soundbite people and all those and I think Blair gave more promises than I would have wanted him to make and about how much he would spend and so on but I remain hopeful and I think uh, he's got some very clever people behind him and uh, we have to get behind them too I, I propose to not in any great flag-waving way but by writing what I can that might help so I, I'm more cheerful than I was a month ago who isn't <laughs> <laughs> In a poem you quoted by uh,
0: John Donne, I think it starts saying, uh, no man is
1: an island. Yes. Um, I would, you, you said quite a lot about England specifically and in the uh, English sense of identity,
0: but I, w- I would like to ask you, do you think England in the metaphorical sense is or should be an
1: island? Not, not in the sense that it uh, it often is regarded. One of the things which I most disliked about um, Special people, I forget their names now, the, the ones who were in the Ministry of Defence and some of the Foreign Office up to a month ago, uh, they tended to be hunting shire men and all that sort of person. And they always, they showed no sense of Europe at all. Uh, I was very provincial and very, I'm not nationalistic, but I suppose I'm patriotic. Um, but five and a half years in Paris really does change you. And you suddenly realize, in a way you didn't before, but you had something of it from literature. I mean, You've only got to read the great Russians, the great French, the great Italians, and so on, to realize that the common threads of European imagination and intellectualism, what a privilege it is to be part of it. What we bring, of course, to it is, above all, Shakespeare, but other things, too. Um, and one of the things that's so depressing, especially about the last lot, was how they, they, were so they weren't patriotic, they were nationalistic and chauvinistic. And they never once talked about going into Europe because Europe matters and that we're part of this great continent. Uh, And we will be. I mean, the people I'm reading now are Montaigne and Pascal all the time because I get more from them. I don't think they're French or anything like that. I just know that they're people I want to listen to. I hope this Labour government will be more like it, but they seem to be totally committed to the idea that they mustn't dream of saying that they're going into Europe because Europe matters and we're part of Europe. This day in the Sunday papers, there's, there's Tony Blair saying, of course my main aim, my sole aim is to stand up for the English cause, or something like that, that if only he would say something about we also do belong to Europe, we are Europeans. But it's politically, doesn't get any votes, and indeed it would probably get a lot of adverse reaction. Danziger book? Yes. Uh, the title, could you repeat yes, it? Yes, sorry, it's called, um, if I've got it wrong, someone will shout out, I think it's called A Journey to the Edge. He yes. has, he has also written uh, Danziger's Britain? I think so, yes, it, it's, that's the only one of his I've read. He's an American who lives in London and he, or oh, did, I, the book's two years old, I suppose, and he went with his camera and his notepad through the sink estates of the major cities, and it, it, it's a deeply depressing book. Much more than, than we would get from just reading the press. It's highly imaginative.
0: In, in reference to those books, do you think that the, um, the things that about the English nation that you describe as positive apply there or have ever applied or will apply again? Or are you talking about an England which yeah. can reconstruct itself in certain places but not everywhere?
1: That's a very knotty one. I, um, I think first of all to take to use a horrible phrase, the body of people um, those qualities I've talked about do exist I'm sure of that. Uh, they they may be in some ways damaged but I think not substantially. It's, um, it's uh, it's quite extraordinary to come from Leeds and go to Paris and then go and live in the heart of deepest suburban Surrey to see the the common roots there. That the thing which Danziger brings home more than anything else is that this, this this type of people and they're not they're not a they are a minority obviously but they're not few. That they have you couldn't say they've opted out of society because they haven't made a move. They just feel that they've dropped to the bottom and that nobody bothers and they live in a a valueless world. He quotes it all the time. They take what they want, uh, they draw their uh, social security, they blew it on drugs. uh, It's a world in which, I keep thinking of images like chaos has come again in which there are no values and they, they don't believe they're going to get jobs anyway, they're not well educated, they haven't done well at school. They are very much at the bottom of the heap. And what he brings out very sharply is that these people exist in more numbers than we want to know and that it's going to be a dreadfully difficult job to, as it were, somehow get them out of it. There's another, I don't go too much about this, but another reason why those uh, examination results which are being put out all the time are so wrong-headed because they tell you what are the ten best schools and the ten worst schools, but they don't relate it to the starting point. And the school which I went to, which is... Uh, was the one grammar school in a district of 30,000 people. It took 30 boys and girls a year. Now it's a comprehensive and its results are dire because the population is 14,000, 40% of one-parent families, nearly all a a woman only. There are 40% on Social Security. How can they dig out of that? And the comprehensive school, the headmaster, said to me, I'm near despair because... uh, I said, what do you do with bright ones? They, they have a right to get on, yes. But he said, the peer group coach is so strong, I can't help them. But I get them to the sixth form college. And I was with a Canberra crew who were very, what they call, streetwise Hammersmith chaps. And uh, the cameraman came to me almost white. I said, what's on? He said, well, two girls there who incidentally were made up and looked like 15. And they were about 14, on high heels and all that, because there are no rules. Uh, he said they cornered him and said, "Do you want it off? Do you want, do you want to have a bit? Uh, I'll, I'll take you around the back of the girls' lab if you and watch, and you can have it off with her, and we'll take turns." And he said a memorable phrase. He said, "I've never met that even in Hammersmith." <laughs> so uh, 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 I felt like that poem of Samuel Butler's, you know, "God O Montreal," about the penis being shown in a, on a statue. <laughs> Oh, sorry, two there, two, a lady, two ladies. Yeah. Um,
0: Mr. Hoggart, I, I was interested that you said that you would be writing what you could to, um, in support of the Labour government and trying to help point them in appropriate directions. How will you be doing this in relation to, or will you be doing this in relation to ensuring that the Labour government talks about social class? Labour government...
1: Talks less about. No, talks
0: more
1: about. Oh, more about, Oh, yes. Well, I keep on. One keeps on going. We all do, don't we? I wrote to Mark Fisher last week. I said, Dear Mark, I didn't ask him for money. I said, We at Book Trust can do a great deal to help you with your uh, uh, children's reading and do call upon us. Because all the others wrote and said, Can we have 10,000 pounds, you see? And so we thought this was a nice device. Uh, one goes on like that. I don't know them, actually. The only one I've ever met is Mark Fisher. Uh, for whom I have a, a, a substantial regard. I also slightly know Frank Field, and I'm very pleased about that appointment. And I take up any other chance I can. But you've got, you don't want to become a Keith Flett, as it were, who, if any of you know. He writes a letter every half day to something, uh, and then people don't know t- pay any attention. Uh, I'd be quite glad if they asked me to join a committee to work it out. But I think they think I'm a bit old, and oh, I am very old, so that they, 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 uh, they don't... Uh, uh, I've got a new book coming out, and that might do a bit. <laughs>
0: please, Mr Hoggett, may I tell you... I've I the right way? Please, may I tell you a brief, uh, I hope, relevant anecdote? Yes. yes, could you
1: put the mic a bit nearer to you? Can you people? hear me
0: now? Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, an anecdote, Mr Hoggett, if I may. Your indulgence. Uh, a couple of years ago, our biology graduate son was working in a Sony factory briefly, and uh, during his very first break, he took out a book. There was an astonished silence. I mean, everybody looked at him, all his workmates. They thought this was so bizarre. I didn't think any one of them had read, not even Hank Jansen. However, they said, What's that you got there then? And Eliot said, it's a history of the Second World War. And one of them said wittily, the Germans won. But then they, uh, they said, well, tell us about it then. And thereafter, during the breaks, Eliot read them, I forget whose history it was, Roper I think. But anyway, he read them, a history of the Second World War. Mind, he's a good reader. <laughs> And they listened. Mm. Mm. They, this is delightful because I thought they would have beaten him to a pulp, but they didn't.
1: Mm. No, <laughs> they that, that's a very typical and good story. If, if there's oh, the gentleman there, I wanted to tell you a story at the end, that's all. A- apart from a more critical readership, do you have ideas about how we get a better press? Oh God. <laughs> we could transport Murdoch to start with <laughs> back home, but I mean, no, there's no way. <laughs> no, we we have to bypass it in a way. Uh, there the, the, the are little touches. I mean, Murdoch will we concentrate on sex and violence because he makes money, and he'll say to anything else. There are little rays of hope. There was a Leicester survey done some years ago now, in which 70 percent of the population of a district just over the road from the university, a working, dis- working class district, um, took the sun. And there were rather cunning questioners at the end of the thing. They said, ah, so you um, take your political opinions from the Sun. Uh, and they said, don't we daft. we get them from the BBC, the news, you see. So they were, they were making a quite subtle distinction, even as against ITV, you see, too. So it's, there is that kind of hope. The story I wanted to tell you is a, it's a funny one, but a totally irrelevant, except that David Lodge was asked this morning about that game where you, you have to admit what book you... What book you haven't read and uh, the, wa- the winner is the one who hasn't read one of the most famous books ever like uh, Middlemarch or something like that you see and they asked David about that and I remember being in David Lodge's house uh, at a party, uh, my wife and I and our daughter was I suppose about 14 or 15 or something, 16 but at the time and uh, they were going around what haven't you read and some revealing that they'd never read Meredith or even King Lear or something and marking up and our daughter won hands down because when it came to her she said I've not read The Use of Literacy <laughs> <laughs> Thank you